Sam probably feels like he's nothing to lose. That's sort of how it struck me. You know, he feels that there is there really a difference between serving 20 years in jail or 25 years in jail. Ultimately, I could kind of see him risking the whole thing here. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, January 12th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about his exclusive sit-down with Sam Bankman-Fried, alone in his parents' house in Palo Alto, scrolling Twitter and awaiting his legal fate. Teddy is one of few reporters to get this close to SBF. You'll definitely want to hear what went down between the two of them. And later, Tara Palmieri stops by to discuss the insider drama surrounding Nancy Pelosi's relationships with the Democratic Party's biggest donors, and whether her successor, Hakeem Jeffries, can learn to make it rain for his colleagues in the House. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who has a great exclusive interview with Sam Bankman-Fried that posted this week on Puck. Teddy, congrats on the scoop. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Thanks for the praise, Peter. I want everyone to go read this. Obviously, SBF was voluble during that little period between the scandal and his arrest, talking to reporters left and right. But you managed to go down to his house in Palo Alto from your perch in the Bay Area and talk to him on a Friday night. Just to open the factory doors a little bit, how did you get this interview? Well, Peter, uh, I asked. I mean, look, I mean, uh, I've known Sam for longer than most reporters. Um, you know, I started getting to know him like two years ago. You know, he was just a guy who was, you know, born a couple months before I was, who donated like $10 million to a Democratic super PAC. And I remember Googling this guy being like, what the hell is this? So I got to know him. Obviously, you know, he's always been very accessible to reporters, which which has made him have a lot of fans in the media and probably upon reflection, like made me like him more because he's accessible. So a couple uh, weeks ago, you know, as this thing was, uh, as his life was imploding and as FTX was imploding, you know, I, like lots of other reporters, wanted to talk to him. We did do an interview in like early December, which, you know, we played some clips from that on this podcast 
around that time. But he has not done any interviews on the record, at least since his arrest, indictment, extradition, the whole shebang. So, you know, around the holidays, we were texting back and forth. And then on Friday, he said, um, I'm around. And it was 5.30 p.m. here at my WeWork in San Francisco. It was, you know, how fast could I get there? Um, and I was there basically an hour later. And then we basically spent the evening chit-chatting. And now I'm here with you, Peter. So you show up in Palo Alto. He's living under house arrest at his parents' house. You write about this vividly. Can you paint the picture for listeners about what this scene is like when you walk in and then what his demeanor is like inside this household? Let me begin by painting the portrait of just even getting there. I mean, so my Uber drops me off, um, you know, on on the street where his home allegedly is, but, you know, there's barricades up there. Um, you know, it is kind of pitch black outside. Two security guards eventually walk up to me, you know, with a, what the hell are you doing sort of uh, look on their face. You know, I had been pre-approved, you know, TSA pre-check equivalent here. They, they knew I was coming. They looked at my license so he has got security now. Yes, he has, he has two security officers who um, did not want to say much about who was paying them or any any of those questions that, you know, annoying reporters would ask when they get to know security guys. So, you know, I walk up to the front door and to some extent, it's like, it's just like anybody, right? Saying, hey, how's it going? You know, welcome in. There are two things I immediately notice upon Sam opening the door on Friday night. One is this like massive dog, like, you know, 75, 85 pound German shepherd that is named Sandor, who has recently been obtained for security purposes to follow Sam at all times. The second thing I notice around his left ankle is a GPS monitor that tracks his every movement to make sure he does not leave the aforementioned house. To some extent, I was struck in those opening moments, Peter, just by like the normalness of it. You could be kind of seduced into forgetting that this is not normal, right? This is one of the most alleged, at least, great criminals in history. And here we are just kind of drinking some seltzer, sitting at his kitchen table, talking about bullshit. Some real stuff, but some bullshit, right? And, and there is an element of that that is surreal, even as I'm recording this, you know, almost a week later. What did he say about the legal state of play right now? Is he optimistic? Does he, is he resigned to going to jail? Is he going to fight this? What was his outlook just generally? Look, I mean, there, there's a difference than the state of play uh, six weeks ago, right? When he was talking to Andrew Sorkin and to me and to everyone else where he was just, a, you know, I guess the word would be embattled, which is a classic journalist word that people love. You know, now he's indicted, right? Whether or not he can kind of maintain that artifice that, you know, it's all good, uh, you know, that, that gets a lot harder when there's, you know, SEC, CFTC and DOJ investigations into the guy. And he, and he spent, you know, a week in Bahamas, in the Bahamas infamous, you know, prison where rats and maggots and violence reign supreme. Like, a lot has changed, no shit, since he and I last chatted. I mean, his legal look outlook is, you know, he believes he is innocent and he believes that there's a lot of game left to be played here. Sam is going to be fighting this in a way where he's going to be intricately involved in, in every decision. I guess it's true as of, of, of every client, you know, facing decades upon decades in prison. But, you know, Sam has been sort of studying the case. He seemed very interested in, in you know, individual witnesses, individual prosecutors, individual charges. He has a ton of time on his hand, obviously, and there's nothing more important than, than winning this. So I think he is trying to be as crafty as he can about, about how to win. He is preparing for the long haul. This is going to be an extraordinarily long nine months. 
You know, this trial is not beginning until October. I'm sure there will be settlement talks just as a matter of due diligence or of hygiene. Open question about whether or not DOJ would really offer him anything appealing given that, you know, they probably feel like they got him dead to rights. Two of his closest collaborators are cooperating. So he's going to be spending the next nine months thinking long and hard about his exposure here criminally. But Sam probably feels like he has nothing to lose. That's sort of how it struck me. You know, he feels that there is a really difference between serving 20 years in jail or 25 years in jail. Ultimately, I could kind of see him risking the whole thing here. Does he have, you know, other than Teddy Schleifer, I mean, does does he have a a circle of friends at all who aren't currently paid employees beyond his parents? No. His closest friends were his colleagues. There's no one left to play the small violin for him anymore. You know, not to put him on the couch here, but like, why are people like me over there? I mean, I think there's a human element of him wanting to talk to have his side of the story aired. I think there's also a human element of he just wants like company. His parents are there, but Sam feels very lonely and feels very isolated and feels like he's going to be spending the next nine months basically just kind of waiting. You know, he, he reads a lot of what he's written about him online. I don't know if that's good. You know, at one point I sort of jokingly was like, you know, you should get into mindfulness work, you know, meditation, therapy. The gist I was getting was like, he's just going to kind of read Twitter and read about the case, which I think is going to make him pretty stir crazy over the next nine months. That's a really scary thought. And like, I'm interested in, in how he can even carry on. Yeah. You know, at, at one point I said, you know, you probably wish the trial was tomorrow, you know, and he said, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, there's an element of, of, of the waiting and the, and the pottering around this, you know, $4 million house that I think would drive any, anybody crazy. There's an element of, of reporting that involves talking to people in like the worst moments of their lives, right? And that is like, I don't mean this in a tongue-in-cheek way, it's sort of like a treat as a journalist to, to not cover like the pedantry of, you know, eating a cop salad on a Wednesday, which is like, to be clear, like 99% of everyone's lives is just like doing laundry and eating salad and, you know, going for a run. But then there's like, you know, 1% of people's lives where you are covering you know, the worst things that happen to people, the things that make news or the best things that happen to people. And that as a reporter, you know, you're just getting to see these raw emotional moments. There's sort of a voyeurism to it that that is kind of creepy when, when you think about it, big picture. But as a reporter, you're just trying to capture, you know, the, these seminal moments in our culture and our history. And not to overstate it, but I did feel like the weight of that a little bit when I was at Sam's house on Friday, you felt like you were just capturing the first draft of history here to some extent. So it was, it was pretty powerful, especially as I reflect on a couple of days later. The last thing I want to ask you on that note, did he say, this is a puck we covered the media after all, did he say if he's still cooperating with Michael Lewis on this book that Michael Lewis is writing about him or did that not come up? It, it, it did not, it did not come up. I mean, I know for a fact that Michael Lewis has been there. You know, that that is a years away project, right? And I think there was an element uh, of, of Sam that, you know, was talking to me, as he said on the record, like, because he wants to get the facts in a better place than they are right now. I'm sure the Michael Lewis book will be extraordinary. And, but like, I don't know if that really helps Sam just in terms of the narrative. Sam is only 30 years old. Like, is he going to wait another quarter of his life, eight, 10 years to like correct the record as he sees it? No. So that's why he's having people like me over because he wants to weigh in in real time. I do think there's an element of me that agrees with him that, you know, the crisis comms playbook that, you know, was written kind of before the internet written in, in, in a time when Google links, you know, didn't live forever. 
and, you know, internet sleuths didn't exist and there were only, you know, three networks. The crisis comms playbook that was written then is very risk averse, right? It is say nothing, you know, reporters will only trust information that is credible, wait for your, to clear your name in the court of a public opinion through the law, like get acquitted. There's an element of me that understands where Sam is coming from when he thinks that that is outdated, right? Which is like, why am I going to wait, you know, five years to get acquitted? Like I'm going to suffer through five years of what he sees as falsehoods and, you know, character assassinations. So the crisis climbs playbook, I'm not sure it's totally makes sense for 2023. I'm thinking of um, our colleague Bill Cohan's book about the Duke lacrosse scandal, and it's called The Price of Silence. Totally. Great book. It's an amazing book. And, and you know, it, it really corrects the record in a lot of ways and, and a lot of the snap judgments that were made at the time. But one of the uh, through lines of the book is the lawyers who were advising the Duke players who were falsely accused basically shut up and they were quiet and they let other people define them in the public conversation and didn't respond. And so perhaps... Sam is, as you say, just flooding the zone with his own narrative (laughs) uh, for people who are just Googling. But I will say for the authoritative narrative, people listening, go to puck.news, read Teddy's piece, click on Teddy's little name there, the byline. It'll take you to all of his pieces on SBF going back even before the scandal. And dude, I mean, you've done such an amazing job and you are one of the most authoritative reporters on this. So congrats and keep grinding. Thank you, Peter. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Tara Palmieri. Hey, Tara. Ben, thanks for having me. Tara, there's an incredible amount of action and uh, chaos over on the Republican side of the House these days, which obviously we've been talking about on the pod and on Puck. But I wanted to also ask you about the much less covered story in terms of leadership changes on the Democratic side, where Hakeem Jeffries just took over for Nancy Pelosi as the party leader in the House and probably the future speaker as well. Before we get into all that, what is Jeffrey's reputation compared to Pelosi in terms of how he's been handling the first few weeks taking the reins from her? I think he had really big shoes to fill. It sounds a little cliche, but when someone's been doing the job for decades, it's hard to jump into that role. She's obviously in the background, which some people say, okay, is her being there like a dead weight and kind of holding him back from fully realizing his potential as leader? Or is she truly in a supportive role? Is she kind of guiding him and really exposing him to her network, which, you know, as minority leader, there's really not a lot of legislating happening, right? Like you're you're not in a role where you can really do much. Maybe there'll be some power sharing agreements, but for the most part, like he's not trying to help Kevin McCarthy get some wins. And it's a lot about messaging, but even more than that, it's about fundraising. It's about taking back the house. And since the majority is so slim right now, there's a lot of pressure on Hakeem Jeffries to win the majority back. Like it's within reach. And so in a way, he's kind of coming into this with the stakes being really high because of how close he is. He's got to raise money to do that. Like one of the biggest skills in politics is not just messaging and policy, it's fundraising. And that was something that Nancy Pelosi was really good at. And Steve Israel, who used to be the Democratic Congressional Committee chairman, told me, you know, she's the best fundraiser I've ever worked with. But it didn't happen overnight. She has relationships dating to when she was head of the California Democratic Party that she has like 
friendships with, lasting kind of relationships. And she's managed these people knowing when to go to them when she needs money (laughs) and when not to. And it's going to be kind of a a test of Hakeem Jeffries to see if he can raise money. I mean, there are privately people have said, oh, he doesn't work the phones enough. He doesn't raise enough. But that's always going to be a knock on someone. And Democrats have been so lucky to have this like flush chest of cash thanks to Pelosi. And I think there's just a bit of anxiety about whether Hakeem Jeffries can step up and also whether, you know, she's really willing to hand over the keys to her Rolodex. Another reason why this story is so remarkable is that this handoff from Pelosi to Jeffries has been so frictionless so far. I mean, it's a, it's a testament to Pelosi's ability to manage her caucus and the media narrative, having been in Congress for decades. I mean, she, she makes this stuff look easy, but it's all very calculated to avoid precisely the type of chaos that's afflicting the GOP right now. Do you think that's something that Jeffries is going to be able to replicate as well, the sort of light touch that's required to shepherd all the different members and keep them moving in one direction? It's going to be hard. I mean, that's, that it wasn't easy for her either. I mean, she had to sort of stay quiet and sort of figure out how to manage the squad when they came up into power. And he'll have, you know, his own struggles with that. But I think the thing is, like, she's still in the picture. I guess there's a feeling of by being in the picture, is she weakening him or is she empowering him? She holds on to her power, though, through this Rolodex, through the donor base, through the fundraising you know, a source explained to me how she manages these people. Like she's got 10 people at the center who are like super wealthy, super connected donors. A lot of them from San Francisco, like the old guard, not new money, Silicon Valley. And she has these relationships where she can just like tap into these people and get the money when she needs to. Then there's another 20 in the outer ring and then there's 30. And like, you know, it's, it's a skill to be able to manage this and to have these kind of relationships. And at the same time, manage your caucus. Democrats need to draw contrast with Republicans. And I know that their way of drawing contrast is to present that they are a unified front, right? Because the Republicans are in such disarray. And so right now they're all putting on a good face, but it's week one. I don't really count last week as the first week of Congress because we didn't have a speaker. You know, you're at parties this week and everyone's putting on a good face. But like once people realize, oh, I'm not on a committee that I wanted to be on or, you know, I'm this or that, there's going to start being mumbling. It's impossible not to fall into some sort of traps. It happens. So we'll see how he's able to navigate that. So far, so good. And yeah, Nancy Pelosi's still around. I was at an event the other day. She showed up very early before the event actually started. And um, she said she doesn't want to be a mother-in-law in in the kitchen. That's what she said, according to Teddy uh, Schleifer in front of Hakeem and a bunch of donors. But like, it's unclear if she'll be able to really navigate that. She's going to have a sort of deference and he's definitely genuflecting before her, but this is a dance and we're one week, we're about a weekend. So we'll see how it all plays out. But definitely the money issue is dangling over the two of them. Yeah, the the mother-in-law in in the kitchen uh, backseat driver dynamic is definitely funny and a little bit unusual. And it speaks to how much Pelosi is respected by her caucus, that she maintains this level of control in a way that's that's probably appreciated rather than causing resentment. You were way out, you know, sort of in front of the curve in terms of reporting on Pelosi's evolving plans to step down from leadership. You were the first to report, in fact, that she had decided to step back into sort of this emeritus role where she's sort of looking over Jeffrey's shoulder, helping point him in the right direction. I want to understand a little bit more about the money side of this too. Because like you said, Pelosi's other big superpower was her ability to manage these donor networks. Is there any concern whatsoever that those relationships are going to end with Pelosi when she fully retreats from Congress? Or is there a feeling that Hakeem can have this magic touch? He just needs to sort of 
imbibe the Rolodex and get to know these people? I think it's going to be a bit of both. Some people will move on and some people just aren't going to gel with him, right? And they're going to move on to someone else or they're going to give to a different candidate or a different cause. Maybe the DNC instead of the House Majority Pack or the DCCC. That's the thing. There's just so many places to give money. Some people will be people that Pelosi never really jived with, like perhaps like the Silicon Valley crowd. And those people will maybe new donors excited about a young you know, Hakeem Jeffries. It's going to go both ways. There's always kind of been a silent knock on him that he wasn't a good enough fundraiser. So this is obvious, the obvious place to look. You know, asking people for money is like a very difficult thing to do. I don't know how people do it, <laughs> to be frank. You know, I ask them for information. It's a little different, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> but it's built on relationships. It's built on trust. And yes, she can point to some people and say, this is where I want you to start giving money. But like, she's also giving up her own power by doing that. So- We'll see if she's willing to do that as well. I mean, she loses relevance when she hands that over. And he's going to have to find new money trees as well. I mean, he's in New York. There's a lot of money there, but it's always a struggle of the leader. And they're always criticized no matter how much they raise. It's early days right now. A lot of donors are tapped out too after the election. So I don't expect it to be like a particularly prolific fundraising report, the first one that we're going to see, but it'll be something to follow for sure. Yeah, some turnover in the donor base for Democrats may ultimately be a good thing for them. I mean, like you noted, like Pelosi was very plugged into the sort of old money world in San Francisco. Those were some of her top donors. Hakeem is more plugged into sort of the tri-state area, also a very wealthy area around New York City where he represents Brooklyn. But yeah, we'll be watching this story closely to see how it all plays out and uh, how Jeffries is settling into the job. Yep. Tara, thanks as always for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 